could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Thanks for checking us out. Today we have an awesome guest, Mr. Jeff Wilkins. For the rare few out there who don't know who Jeff is, I'm going to kick it off by reading a little bit of background and bio on him. So he started his undergraduate career at the University of Arizona, where he earned a degree in electrical engineering. He then continued at Arizona for grad school, where he studied interfaces between analog and digital computers. In 1970, he found his way to Columbus, Ohio, where he became a president of a company called CompuServe. CompuServe was the first internet service provider, also introduced a variety of other firsts for the internet, including the first online newspaper, the first email service, first online stock quotes, and the first online shopping service. Leading Jeff be called by some the father of the internet and the father of email. CompuServe was eventually bought and merged with AOL, and then Jeff moved on to some other positions in his career. CompuServe is still known around the world today. Um, since then, Jeff has been the chairman and CEO of many other companies, like I mentioned, including the CEO and chairman of Meditech Corporation, which manufactured CDs and DVDs. He was the CIO of Ohio State University, the co-chairman and CFO of Healthcare DataWorks, Today, he holds position on a board of a variety of tech companies throughout Columbus. He's also the active CEO of Facilities Management Express, which is a leading-edge provider of workflow management solutions, which empower facility managers and occupants of managed facilities to maintain resources and equipment easily and cost-effectively. Mr. Wilkins, welcome to the show. We're super lucky to have you, and we have a lot to cover today. I think the best place for us to start off, though, is in your childhood, you had a strong interest in science and technology. Maybe take us through that and how that evolved and where that interest came from. Sure. I, I think it probably started when I was a little kid and saw my first science fiction movie and saw all the flashing lights and the dials. And for some reason, I just had an affinity to electronics and things that were mechanical. And uh, so I, I think I developed very early um, interest in electricity and, and actually rockets a little bit later. That's how I got in, interested in ham radio. And uh, of course, in, uh, there are always people willing to help you along the way. I found a mentor in my small town of Rapid City, South Dakota, who would teach young boys about amateur radio, and he took me under his wing and taught me the Morse code and how to pass my license, and so I think it was about eight years old, I got my novice license and began communicating with other ham radio operators around the world. Okay, so that's pretty interesting. What did you communicate back and forth with these radio operators about? Well, it was really uh, mostly just you'd connect with them and find out where they were, and I'll, uh, there are actually different classes of radio license. The first one was novice, and you could only use Morse code. And then very quickly thereafter, I passed what was called then a conditional, where you could actually use voice to communicate. And I built my own transmitter uh, out of a kit and uh, had, had a receiver. And I remember the first night after I got my license, I was uh, in my bedroom, and I was kind of combing the, the, I think it was the 10-meter band, if I remember it correctly, and I heard somebody calling CQ. That's the signal you use to say, is there anybody out there that wants to talk? 
And uh, so I answered this CQ, and the first thing you always ask was, you know, where are you? There was, they had all this shorthand to ask this, but they'd say, where are you? And he says, I'm at uh, such and such an Air Force base in Guam. And I thought, Guam? That's halfway across the Pacific, maybe two-thirds of the way. Am I really talking to somebody in Guam? And that's where he was. And I was just, I thought that was the greatest thing ever, that you could, you know, do this and communicate around the world. That's pretty wild, the things that we take for granted today, huh? Oh, sure. Today, I've, you know, it's probably passed through about 14,000 routers and you can, you know, chat with somebody in Guam and with full motion video. But, you know, back then, this that was really, uh, I mean, remember, these were, uh, these were, this was equipment built with vacuum tubes. You know, semiconductors weren't even invented yet. So, I mean, the, the idea of a transistor was still just being germinated in Bell Labs. So, you know, this was, this was the dark ages in terms of technology. Right. But as you moved into high school... You spent your time building solid rocket fuel and studying astronomy. What made you want to pursue these subjects, and uh, were you ever considering going into the space program? I, I was, actually. Uh, it was my plan as soon as I knew there was a space program to be an astronaut, but fortunately I had uh, I was very nearsighted and I wasn't going to be possible, but I, that's for another time. Uh, I was always fascinated with things that flew. Um, I, um, uh, I remember reading books about amateur rocketry and, and trying to approve upon them, um, one of my breakthroughs was that in those days, again, it was very early. They used to make rockets using zinc or zinc and sulfur, and the mixture would burn, would melt and burn pretty hot. And I thought, well, gee, if it works really well in powder form, I wonder what would happen if you could get it somewhat denser. And so I looked at the melting point of sulfur, and I realized you could get that with a pretty good crock pot. So I started melting zinc and sulfur and making solid pellets to go into these rocket engines, and we got tremendous power out of them. And then I started to study uh, rocket nozzles and how you could get you know, higher velocity uh, fuel out of these little rockets. And we launched some things that... Uh, well, I do have a story for you. Um, we, invented the, we, did, we were working on this new rocket engine with a new nozzle, and we just, our parents were really uneasy about us building these solid-fuel rockets. So we had a test site uh, out in the city dump, out in the middle of the city dump, that we got the permission from the city to use. And we'd build a, a concrete block wall with a b- bulletproof glass viewing area we could get behind it. And we had this test stand that uh, would measure the thrust that our engine would produce. And it, would, uh, it had a huge uh, range it could measure of thrust. And... So we decided this would be a great time to invite all of our parents out so we could show them, you know, how safe we were. So we got this engine and decided that instead of just doing it the normal way, we would put a burst diaphragm in the nozzle. Well, a burst diaphragm is basically nothing more than a piece of aluminum that fits on the inside of the nozzle. And when the thrust builds up enough in the engine to blow the burst diaphragm out, then it's at full thrust, which is what you really need to take off. So we decided to put the burst diaphragm in the test engine and we mounted it in the stand and all the parents are there, you know, hunkered down behind the, uh, the wall. And just then my mother starts driving into the dump. I can see her coming in a red car. And uh, unfortunately, we had already started the countdown. And so when her car got just about halfway to where we were, the thing went off. And instead of just burning the way it's supposed to, the burst diaphragm went off. It had so much thrust, the engine actually came out of the test stand and went airborne as she was driving in. Well, needless to say... 
the parents thought perhaps we needed to tighten up a little bit on the safety measures. <laughs> My mother really had a, was unhappy about that. But we had a lot of fun building rockets, and, and uh, I, I was very interested, actually, in becoming an astronaut. I started out in aeronautical engineering at one point, and then, uh, un- unfortunately, aeronautical engineering went through a lot of cycles. It, when the space program was hot, it was a really great place to be, and then it would cool off, and NASA spending would drop, and it would go into the tank. So ultimately ended up on electrical because I thought it had a greater, better future. Okay, so we've covered your love for science and building things that can fly. When did that transition into an entrepreneurial spirit, and what were some of the first businesses that you built? Well, actually, Josh had a number of businesses along the way. When I was in high school, uh, I started a concession stand business at a local swimming pool. Uh, I used to, nobody had a private pool in the town I grew up in, but there were a couple of municipal pools, and I was always disappointed when we would get, when we get out of the pool that we couldn't have someplace to get something to eat. And I noticed that there was a light pole that had power on it in the parking lot, and, and I had seen this old circus wagon stored downtown, and I, I went down and contacted the guy that had the circus wagon, asked him if I could rent it, and then I went to the city and asked him if I could rent space at the pool to open this concession stand. And uh, I had to go before city council. I was about 14 or 15 years old at the time, and they said, why not? So for one summer, I had this concession stand business, sold popcorn, cotton candy, hot dogs, and, you know, I could hire help for 50 cents an hour and go sit by the pool with all the girls and then just go back when the pool closed and count the money. It was the, one of the best jobs I ever had. Yeah, that's incredible. And what I want to know is where did you get the attitude to go out and start a business at 14 or 15 years old and do it, put all this work in for a concession stand at the pool? Well, um, my grandfather was a small businessman. My father was a businessman. I remember hearing around the dinner table a lot of times that you're better off owning a popcorn stand than you are working for a big company. And so I just sort of had this idea that, you know, if I wasn't going to be the owner, I at least want to be part of the management team. And so I, I sort of watched what they all did, and it seemed to me that there was a need and there was an opportunity to fill the need. It's not any different today than in high-tech businesses. You're trying to identify pain points, trying to figure out a solution to solve the pain and see that there's a market, you know, product market fit and scale it. It just was at a very simple way. And, uh, you know, I learned a long time ago that when you, uh, when you act like you know what you're doing, Josh and I talk about this a lot, you know, fake it till you make it. If you act like you know what you're doing and, you're, and you have guts enough to just ask questions, oftentimes you'll find the answer is, is one you like. So I just learned early not to be afraid. So something that kind of brings to my mind is an attribute that I've noticed about you, Jeff, in particular, and other successful entrepreneurs that we've interviewed is their ability to be conscious of human behavior going on around them, kind of reverse engineer things, and really identify problem points that they can solve to help other people out. Can you talk a little bit about this topic? Well, I think it's a good point. I mean, I've always been a student of human behavior. I always like to see why. I always watch people and see what they do, and I often try to think about why do they do what they do. And, you know, some things are pretty predictable, and, and, and some aren't. But Generally, if you watch people and you think about what things are going through their mind, you can actually see opportunities. And so it didn't take much for me to see at the public swimming pool that a hot dog stand in the parking lot would be a success. So the question was, what does it take to get it done? And, you know, the first thing you do is go say, who owns the parking lot? Well, it's the city. Well, who do I talk to the city? Well, i got to go talk to the mayor. Well, so you get on and talk to the mayor and say, Your Honor, I, or Sir, I, I'm interested in starting a business. You know, he said, well, nobody's ever done that before. 
I said, well, uh, there's a real need. Uh, oftentimes people come up to me and say, gosh, it'd be great. It seemed to me like it'd be a great service to the community. He says, yeah, that seems like a good idea. So, you know, if you're willing to just ask questions, you'll find opportunities. But, you know, some people are just put off by the, by the uh, maybe it's the accoutrements or the mantle of, of, the, of the office. Well, I can't talk to the mayor. Well, the mayor's just like everybody else, you know. In fact, he's probably got a lot of problems that he'd like to get solved. So I, I think, if you know, if I were young and, and trying to think about what to do, I would just, I'd just ask a lot of questions and not be afraid to take some action. So life took you from hustling snacks at the local pool to building an alarm company in college. Uh, were there any businesses in between that period? Well, I actually started school at a small uh, college in Wisconsin called Ripon College. Uh, I was actually going to study physics. And uh, it was a small school, about 725 kids. Um, interestingly enough, uh, I had a fraternity brother there by the name of Harrison Ford, who, uh, who I knew as Harry Ford, but then went on to become Harrison Ford. Uh, but the, uh, small, the school was very small, and uh, they didn't have an engineering program. Physics was heavily math-oriented, and while I liked math, uh, I really wanted more hands-on, so I decided to look for something that um, you know, was more uh, practical or where I could apply the... Uh, the knowledge, and uh, so engineering was my choice, and I looked for an engineering school, and uh, I really liked uh, University of Arizona for a number of reasons. So when you made it to Arizona, did you start your company right away, or what was that transition period like? No, it's actually, uh, it's actually again, it's a, it's a see a, see a problem, fill it, see a need, fill it, fill it, and what happened was I was, um, I was in, in double E, as I mentioned, electrical engineering, I was uh, thinking about, uh, I was senior year, I guess it was, or just starting going to graduate school. And uh, I had a classmate that was a couple years younger that wasn't in double E, but he came to me and said, my parents' home was broken into and they want to get an alarm system. We can't figure out what to do. He said, you're a double E. You're supposed to know about stuff like this. Can you help us? And I said, well, let me look at it. So we talked a little bit and and, uh, I looked, we just, semiconductors had just started to become available in volume and and there was a particular type of semiconductor that would really work well to replace a relay and all alarm systems had relays in those days and they were highly unreliable they would stick or they wouldn't work properly and so but these semiconductors were highly reliable so I said to him you know um, I think what I would do is build an alarm system for your folks house um, but I don't want to do it for just one so if you'll find five neighbors so we have six customers then I'll build the alarm system and hire some people to install it. So that's how the business started. He got six customers. For it. Actually, got a lot more than that. Right, that's not a bad deal and a good way to start a business. So how much longer did you continue to run the alarm manufacturing business? Well, it was a tough business uh, for a number of reasons because, uh, first of all, I was really a novice at business and I didn't understand a lot about the pricing and margins and, you know, we had employees and paying taxes and it was, it was really kind of challenging. I raised some capital from a local company in Tucson. The name of the company was Burr Brown Corporation. Was a, he was a graduate of a double E school there at Arizona. And um, uh, he, had a, uh, he, he had gone to the Harvard Business School, and he had an assistant who had also gone to the Harvard Business School. And, what he, and, and so in addition to putting some capital into the business, uh, they taught me finance. Uh, she taught me how to do forecast, she taught me how to do budgeting, uh, it was an amazing process, you know, what I learned from her. And, um, um, you know, I, I, I joke about it today because we would do these forecasts on 14-column uh, grid paper, you know, to, and today you do it on an Excel spreadsheet. I can do in, 
you know, in an hour what it took a month to do back then, or maybe more, and it's m much better. So anyway, I, I learned a lot in that alarm business, um, but it was shortly thereafter that I got a call from my father-in-law, who was here in Columbus at the time, who I really didn't know very well, who had started a life insurance company and was looking for some data processing help. And I got a call asking uh, what I knew about it, and I told him I knew nothing, but uh, I'd look around and see if I could find somebody who could perhaps help him. I was uh, going to graduate school with a guy who I thought a lot of. His name was uh, Andy, uh, Sandy Trevor. Alexander Trevor is his full name. And uh, Sandy was interested in, in perhaps looking at it, and he was going to come back here with me and talk to them. Uh, but he was drafted and uh, went to, or pulled into the Vietnam War, and so he went off to Saigon for a couple of years. And uh, so I found another gentleman uh, by the name of John Goltz who showed interest. And, uh, and that's why I mentioned early on in our discussion that John was really one of the co-founders of, of, Com of CompuServe. So that's sort of how the transition got from um, all those little silly small businesses into something that had the potential to really turn into something. And so when did you enter into CompuServe as president? Well, I came in as president and CEO in 1970, okay. January of 1970. And so that's very, that was pretty early on with the business. Like, At what stage was CompuServe at at that point when you took over? Well, the best, best way to describe it is um, I had a nine-month-old daughter at the time, and so I, my wife and daughter flew back, and I drove our car back, and I had an address for some space that they rented on uh, Fifth Avenue, and uh, it's actually Fifth Avenue, just east of Grandview on the south side. Today it's a UPS store. And uh, they, they said, here's the address of where we're going to start the business. And so I drove in town on, on I-70, and I drove down to High Street, came up High Street West on Fifth Avenue because I didn't know how to get around anywhere. Found, a, a I think it was 1386 maybe, West Fifth Avenue, and I went up. It looked like an old grocery store, a little one-story building. I pushed on the door, and it was open. And I walked in, and it was this big, empty building. And the only thing in the building was a folding chair and a phone. And I picked up the phone to see if it worked, and it worked. So I assumed that was going to be that was going to be CompuServe, and that's that's where it started. Huh? It's amazing. Most people would be like, "All right, I'm going back to Arizona. This, there's a folding <laughs> chair in here." Well, you need to understand uh, something about. I mean, you guys all know this today because you're all highly educated, and you go to college, and you learn a lot about business in ways that you aren't even aware you're absorbing it, but capital is the most important thing uh, to have access to in a business. You have to be adequately capitalized to survive. That doesn't mean you have to have a lot, but you have to have adequate amount. And the life insurance company that put the capital up for CompuServe was well capitalized. So I really knew that you know they, they had the, the will and the way to make that happen. And, and that was the reason I actually left my small company in Arizona and came back to work on this one, because... I knew what the technology could do, and I knew the capital was there, and I knew how smart John Goltz was and some of the other people that we were going to bring in shortly thereafter, so it was an easy decision for me to make. So in grad school, you studied the difference between analog and digital computers. Can you talk a little bit about what the difference is between an analog and digital computer and how this knowledge helped you transition into your role as president of CompuServe? Well, I think I'd bore everybody if we get into great detail, but let me just, uh, let me just put it this way. Uh, analog computers work with levels of signals, like voltages that go up and come down smoothly. And digital computers are a series of binary numbers, zeros and ones, in some sort of electronic state. 
And so analog computers at that time were much faster than digital computers for purposes of doing simulations. For example, if you're going to simulate the vibration in an airplane wing, you would do it on an analog computer in those days because the digital computers weren't fast enough. But digital computers were coming on pretty quickly, and they could do certain things really well. So my master's thesis was interfacing the two. You would do, you'd do the thing, some of the things on the analog computer, then you'd pull the data into the digital computer, do things there, and so they worked in conjunction for solving simulation problems. It was a very unique way to do it at the time, and my master's professor was a leader in the world in, in that sort of field. But what it, get, what it did was it gave me a pretty good glimpse into how digital computers worked, um, I had a chance to build some hardware for this thesis, and you know, it, it was it was a fascinating project. Um, but uh, John Goltz was a was a develop was a programmer, a machine language programmer was very smart, as I mentioned earlier, and so he actually rewrote the operating system for this large mainframe we used for CompuServe, which gave us a tremendous uh, increase in productivity and throughput, and made us very competitive in the in the marketplace. And then obviously CompuServe eventually evolves into one of the biggest companies of its day. Can you talk a little bit about how it grew, what that evolution process was like, and kind of take us through that experience? Sure. Uh, we got our, as I said, I got there in January. I think, we, I think we got our computer delivered in March or April, and we got it up and running maybe May or June. And we started selling services on it just in Columbus. I remember the first customer spent $135 with us, and I you know, I thought for a million-dollar computer, we're going to have to sell a lot of $135 accounts. <laughs> but uh, it was, uh, uh, that's how you start. And uh, we were selling in the early days just access to a machine. We didn't have any software we'd built. And it was just people would rent time on our machine to write their own programs. And that's how we started in Columbus. Uh, we very quickly uh, developed the product offering to where we had I would say a year later, we were selling uh, engineering software that would help people design buildings. Uh, we had a number of other kinds of applications built by that time as well. So we moved up the uh, kind of the value curve from machine, from machine language to tools to complete solutions for certain types of market segments. We grew our employment pretty rapidly as well. I'd say we probably added, oh, I'm going to guess here, but maybe... 20 people in the first year, and we probably added another 20 people in the second year, maybe. So we were growing pretty quickly. Uh, it took us about two and a half years to turn profitable, um, but it was a, uh, we, we, we were, and it was a very competitive marketplace. If you listen to that Internet History podcast, uh, at one point there were 50 companies as competitors. The next year there were 250. It was really a challenging time. But we had a really good team. Uh, we had a, uh, uh, we had a strong, young group of very bright people. You know, it's interesting. I, I know your audience is relatively young, so I was going to... I've had a chance this afternoon to talk to a venture capitalist on the West Coast. We were talking about the facilities management uh, space where you and I participate, Josh. And he was talking about all the merger and acquisition activity that's happening in, the, in there, and we were talking specifically about a few companies, one of which is a competitor of ours, because I'm trying to always try to stay up to date on everything that's happening. And he was talking about something called a hunger index. And, and I, was, I was really curious about that. And he said, well, to give you an example, hunger, hunger index is the operating expense divided by the number of people in the company. So if you get a bunch of old guys and they decide to get together and start a company, they pay themselves, you know, who knows how much, 
probably a hundred thousand, well over a hundred thousand dollars each, and they start this company and they hire some other people just like them. So if you take the operating expenses and you divide it by the number of people, it's 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 not a very good no, it's a big number. Okay, if you go get a bunch of people under thirty, and you and you recruit them, they'll work a hundred hours a week for thirty five forty thousand dollars you know a year, and you compute the hunter index there. What do you get? It's a great number which explains why if you're young and you start companies, it's so much easier to raise venture capital because your hunger index is so much better. And I thought that's really true. Uh, you know, and when I think about CompuServe in those days, we had, a, we had a great hunger index, right? If you think about where we are with FMX, we have a great hunger index. You go and look at IBM and calculate theirs, it's not too good. So something to think about. You have a real advantage being young and you need to take, you need to take advantage of it. Right, and you mentioned earlier that competition was one of your biggest challenges early on with CompuServe, but are there any other challenges in particular that you remember being um, difficult to solve, and how did you solve those things? Well, there are always problems, and there are always bumps. And, uh, you know, just when you think there aren't any, the bigger ones pop up. Um, I... uh, I could tell some stories, but I probably don't want to go. I don't want to go on record. Uh, the uh, uh, or maybe I will actually go on record because th- this one has got this one's a good sort of human resources kind of human interaction story. I already mentioned that John Goltz was one of the brightest people I'd ever met. But John Goltz was a little bit quirky on some in some ways. For example, uh, there's a difference between a, a, a rule follower and a rule breaker. And a rule breaker is someone generally who does whatever's necessary to get the job done, and a rule follower will, will only go so far. So in our little building down on Fifth Avenue, we were always changing the walls because, you know, things were always changing. And we were trying to save every nickel we could. So if we wanted to move a wall, uh, we would just take the wall down and we'd move the, you know. And John thought we ought to get a permit from the city of Columbus. And my answer was, well, we could get a permit. I said, but it isn't going to change how we're going to do the work. And I said, it's going to take us six weeks, so we're not going to get a permit. So he, uh, he, he called me and he said, you know, he said, I just can't condone violating the law like this. And he said, if we don't change this, uh, I'm going to quit. And uh, think for a minute, you know, what that would mean, right? He's the principal technical developer for the company. And uh, here I am, uh, you know, I couldn't, couldn't carry his briefcase, you know, technically. So what do you do? So I just agonized over it. And I finally made a decision, and I called him in my office. I said, John, I understand your decision. If you can't go along with it, I understand you're going you're gonna to quit. And I said, I'm good with that. I hope you make the right decision. And, you know, I don't know what was going to happen. I get a call at 3 in the morning. He used to call me all the time at 3 or 4 in the morning because he liked to go come into work at 10 o'clock at night and he used to like to work till noon. Uh, and he was, he was tireless. So he called me and he said, you know, he said, I've thought it over. He said, I think the company is more important than my concern for the permit. So he said, we're good. But it was the first time I ever called him, you know, because there were ultimatums before that too. I mean... So I guess for your audience, the, the, the real lesson here is, is that you will be tested as a leader in ways you can never imagine. And if you're very clear in what you intend to do and how you intend to do it and why you do it, I, you, you will persevere. 
If you, on the other hand, allow yourself to be whipsawed every which way because somebody doesn't like the way you do something, you're going to live a miserable life. So go with your gut. And that's an invaluable lesson from an individual who has been a leader of so many successful ventures throughout his life. Can you talk a little bit about, though I'm interested, in why you eventually decided to leave CompuServe after it was achieving such enormous amounts of success while you were there? Yes. Um, in uh, You've jumped way ahead here to about 1985. Uh, a company was about 15 years old. Uh, we were have, we'd had tremendous success. We had sold the company in 1980 to H&R Block. Uh, I, had, uh, I was on the H&R Block board and... Uh, I noticed in about 84 that we were having difficulty recruiting against other startup companies because, remember, we were public on our, or you maybe didn't know this, but we were public on our own uh, in the in the 70s uh, up until 1980. H&R Block was a public company too. They were on the New York Stock Exchange, very successful firm, great people, by the way. Um, but uh, we were trying to recruit young people into our company, and we always use stock options to do to make it more attractive. But we didn't. But we they wanted us to use H and R Block stock options, and we'd say to people in the recruiting process, "Well, we'd love you to join CompuServe, and our parent company's H and R Block." And they'd say, "Well, aren't they the tax people?" Yeah, but you're going to get H and R Block stock options because CompuServe is an important part of this business. It just didn't work very well. So I. Uh, I went to uh, I went to Henry Henry Black was the CEO at the time and and uh, board and I said you know I think we need to change something I think we need to spin part of CompuServe back out into the public with its own security H and R Block would own eighty percent which still would allow them to consolidate financial operations uh, for reporting purposes which was important for the value of their stock but it would give us the uh, the tool to uh, incent people were trying to recruit to have stock in the company that they're actually working in. And uh, they said they'd think about it, and, and they actually hired Goldman Sachs to come in, and Goldman Sachs interviewed me, and you know I explained the problem to them. They understood the problem, they agreed, and they said, we'll get back, and so they went back, and Block came back, and they said, well, Goldman says it's too early. We should do this in two or three years when the, com- when the company's a little bigger. And frankly, uh, you know, I didn't think that was the right answer, and uh, I thought it would be it was going to really hurt the business uh, if we didn't do that. And so I basically decided at that point I was probably going to do something different. So Jeff, how big was the company at that point? That's a good question. Um, I'm going to guess around 100 million sales, which in today's world would be 500 million, something like that. Pretty good sized business. Yeah, about a thousand employees. What was your biggest objection to Goldman's plan? Was it just that you felt that you wouldn't be able to get the talent the company needed to continue growing the way it was? It was to me. It's always about how do you attract and retain people. Companies are only as strong as their people, and uh, you know I saw that I saw that as an important part of the attraction and the retention part. Now the people are already there had CompuServe options, and you know they that were which were converted to H&R Block and did very well. I mean, number of number we created a number of millionaires, um, but I was worried about the new people trying to come in, and I thought it was really going to hobble, you know, the company going forward. Now, it it actually these kinds of things don't have an immediate effect. You know, the company when I left it had tremendous momentum, it, it had a tremendous management team, it had a tremendous workforce, 
Um, it had tremendous culture. Everything about the company was just top quality, and, and it was rolling along very nicely. It took a long time before some of the, some of the negative things started to happen. Um, actually, it, uh, it probably became too successful, and sometimes people take their eye off the ball when that happens, and, and I spoke in the Internet podcast about that, Internet History podcast about that. Um, but I, I actually, I was really itching. There, there, really, there really wasn't quite as much challenge for me personally uh, at that point. I just really wanted to, to build something, and um, I could see that that was going to hobble my ability to build that further. So made the decision to leave. So you're right, we did jump a little far ahead there. And what I want to circle back around to is that CompuServe did a great job of coming up with the first of many different things throughout the Internet. I heard that you encouraged side projects for people working at the company. And you kind of almost worked as a startup inside of a, a larger size organization. So you talk a little bit about how you were able to drive innovation within the company and how you were able to get it to operate in this type of fashion. Well, let's talk first about uh, innovation in bigger companies. Now, that wasn't a huge company like, you know, you think of a GE today that's trying to drive innovation, you know, using Eric Reese's, you know, lean startup methodology. Uh, it, it, it wasn't like that. But we hired a lot of very good people into our company from, that came from big companies. And they had, they brought with them some of their big company culture. Like the simplest one was everybody wore white shirts and ties. You know, today that would just be you know, anathema, right? Nobody would do that. But back then, everybody wore white shirts and ties and wore suits to work. Um, and we were very kind of buttoned down, if you can follow that term. I mean, it was a very professional organization. And so when we began the CompuServe Information Service, which was designed to go to owners of personal computers, and they were really consumers and, and you know, uh, um, technical hobbyists, some of our professional people had difficulty with that. They thought it was somehow... a a dilution of our of our mission and our vision, and it just didn't fit with our philosophy. I saw it as a chance to, you know, diversify the business and go in a whole new direction to get better utilization of our assets. And when I began to see the resistance, I decided to do a Skunk Works project. I took the team that was developing the new service and moved them into another computer center, another building, complete different building, all away from away from the from the product line managers and the professional sales team and let them just kind of do their own thing. And they looked a lot more like companies do today. You know, they had a lot of fun. They dressed funny. They did all, you know, they just, they had fun. And not that we didn't have fun in other parts, but it was just done differently. So I would say that was probably a key to the uh, to the innovation advancement that we had. Yeah, and so... Um that advancement, you know, there were a lot of firsts that we really didn't cover, like we mentioned in the introduction, but um, we were talking a little bit earlier, and you said, mentioned you had a story about the newspapers in particular, having the first new online newspapers and meeting between all the large um, newspaper companies in the country. Is there, you think we, you could uh, take a little time to tell us that story? Sure, be happy to. Um, l- l- let me set the stage, set the scene a little bit. Uh, this is 1979, 1980, early 1980, we'll say. In 1980, there were uh, not very many personal computers out there. There were some. They were mostly kits. They were just the first uh, first completely encapsulated machines were coming out. Uh, TRS-80 maybe a little later, but um, anyway, it was a very small market. And, of course, in those days, computers communicated using acoustic modems. You'd call up uh, on the phone line, and you'd put your handset into an acoustic modem, and 
All the communication was text. It was very low speed. But um, one of uh, so when we started developing the CompuServe Information Service, we were looking for products we thought might be of interest to people, and one of them was that I thought would be interesting would be searchable news, and. Of course, by being a reader of papers and, and TV and so forth, I knew that Associated Press was uh, one of the prime suppliers of, of national and international news. And so I thought it would be terrific if we could find a way to get a news feed from the Associated Press. And uh, so we started by calling the Columbus Dispatch and saying, we'd like to do a test of a newspaper feed. Would you be interested in helping us develop this? And they said they would. And so they gave us a feed and our our developers then build a little uh, parsing system that would pull the news off the wire as it was coming and load it into stories and index it and so forth. And then I said to them, "Well, how do we get the how do we get the feed?" And they said, "Well, you'll have to go see the Associated Press in New York. That's where the headquarters." So I called the Associated Press and uh, uh, I said, I've "Got an idea for a product for the Computer Information Service and." To sell to personal computers and think it was a real opportunity for the Associated Press. I'd like to come talk to you about it. They said, fine. I went to New York and I took this little demonstration system and I showed it to the, to the gentleman. And he said, well, he said, this is really interesting. He said, but I have to be honest with you, the Associated Press is owned by member newspapers and we have a board. And our board is, uh, makes all these, makes all the decisions of what happens. And, and, uh, and there, and then the board is made up of the publishers of, papers and, and they're meeting next week in Hawaii uh, would you mind if I show this to them and uh, see what their ideas are because I said what we want to do is license the wire you know we'd pay for it or we'd pay them some kind of royalty or something so I got a call the following week from Hawaii and this this gentleman said well I, uh, our board uh, enjoyed the demonstration and would like to come to Columbus and I said, oh, great. Um, when do they want to come? He said, next week. I said, Who, who's, who's on your board? He said, well, it's uh, Catherine Graham and Arthur Salzberger. And I knew those two names right off the bat. You know, that was, she was the publisher of the Washington Post, and Salzberger was the New York Times. And he made some, mentioned another name, Bob Marbot, who I, I knew as well from the, some studies at the Harvard Business School. I knew he ran a big newspaper chain. So I, that's great. So uh, they... They came to Columbus, and we had a uh, meeting in our conference room up on Henderson Road, and uh, uh, Sandy Trevor and I had been thinking about what we wanted to get out of this, and we said what we really wanted was them to advertise the Conference of Information Service in exchange for participating in this test of an online newspaper. And they, uh, so we made the presentation, they said, well, could we have a few minutes to talk? So we left the room, and so long, they took a long time, I think it was almost 45 minutes, and they said, come back in, and they said, what, uh, well, first of all, I said, what do you want? I said, well, we want $250,000 of advertising in each paper that participates in the test. We want to do 10 newspapers, and, uh, and we want to try out a lot of different things, you know, advertising, shopping, just, and plus the newspaper can do whatever they want. And so uh, they asked us back in the room, they said, well, We've agreed. We, we agree with that, but uh, we want to do more than ten newspapers. We want any of our members who want to participate to be able to participate, provided that they do the two hundred fifty thousand of advertising and, and participate. And we want the ten of us want to be part of the first test. So 
we ended up with every major newspaper, big newspaper in the United States. We got the LA Times, San Francisco Chronicle, the New York Times, Washington Post, the Atlanta Constitution, Dallas Morning News. We had every, and and then I said I have one more uh, request, and I said if that be that it the first paper to go online is the Columbus Dispatch, and. Uh, they agreed. So the Columbus Dispatch was actually the first electronic newspaper to ever go live in the world. So you guys took them a deal, and they actually came back with more than what you guys were even asking for. Is that correct? Oh, it was beyond our wildest dreams. I mean, it was all I could do to stop keep from jumping up and down. Right. You know, it was, and I, I knew who these people were. I mean, this was the creme de la creme of the American newspaper industry, and they were gonna they were gonna advertise our service in their newspapers, and some of them ran full page ads. It was just amazing. So we took it from something that was kind of a little-known hobbyist product to something that the general public was starting to read about. So I'm assuming that helped you guys gain massive amounts of exposure and gain a very big user base for your products. How big was that to the future success of the company and where you guys went from there? It was massive. It was massive. You know, it wasn't that the product itself was so compelling. I mean, think about it. It was a text product of news stories. You know, it was searchable. Uh, it was slow. Uh, you know, it wasn't nearly as interesting as reading the newspaper. But for the first time, you could read news from any part of the country or the world, and you could do it when you wanted to read it online. And, and uh, you know, they ran TV stories about it. And you can go online today on YouTube and put in uh, CompuServe San Francisco Chronicle, and there's about a three-minute story uh, of this news reporter talking about how the Chronicle runs their, their version of CompuServe's newspaper. So it was huge. A bigger story, though, in terms of the distribution was, uh, was a, uh, uh, another kind of interesting anecdote. When we were trying to figure out how to get the product distributed, we, we thought the best thing was to do it with computers. So if you bought a computer, you got a password and a user, num- a user number and a password, right? And, and I was trying to think about who the most successful company in the United States was that made, made sort of small computers. And it was, at the time, it was Texas Instruments. And so I had been negotiating with them to make a deal. And uh, the, uh, I was scheduled to go to Lubbock, which is where they were headquartered at the time. You may remember, you won't remember this because you weren't alive then, but the Texas Instruments was the people that really developed the handheld calculator. Bomar Brain was the first one ever built, and they disappeared, and TI owned the market. TI was a really smart company. They would price their products way out on the price-volume curve, and they'd run everybody else out of the market and dominate. And so I thought they'd do the same thing with, with these computer terminals. So that's why I picked them to try to go after. And, and they were tough negotiators. I remember negotiating at midnight on a Friday night trying to finish this deal over the telephone, and, and, I, and I had to capitulate on something I really didn't like at the end. And then um, on Monday morning, as I was getting making the plans to go to Lubbock, I think two or three days later, uh, Mike Ward, who you know, came in to see me, and he said, Jeff, he said, we've been talking to this company in Fort Worth called Radio Shack, and I think you need to stop and see them on your way to Lubbock. He said, they've got some ideas that, about the personal computer that they think you need to hear. And so I changed my flight and went through uh, Fort Worth on my way to Lubbock, and uh, met with a gentleman there by the name of John Roach, who actually went on to become the CEO of Radio Shack, and he told me about the, the PC knockoff they were going to build and that they had 4,000 stores and that they didn't want anything from us other than our snap packs, which they would pay us for, and, uh, and they were ready to start on Monday. And 
I shook hands and canceled my flight to Lubbock and never even went out to see Texas Instruments. That's an incredible story, Jeff. And um, we're kind of approaching the end here. And you've had a lot of success between CompuServe and FMX today. And we can't go over all of them, but what we wanted to ask you was, are there any experiences or stories from your time at these other companies that you feel significantly shaped the path of your life to this point? Well, actually, I have several things I want to talk about with you because I, when I read your notes of the kinds of things that your audience is interested in, um, I guess the, uh, the first thing I would tell you is, uh, of all the things I've ever done, the single most important thing that has led to them either succeeding or failing uh, and you never have asked me about failures. Uh, there's a lot of failures along the line. You'll never find anybody that's ever done anything that hasn't had failures. Um, most important thing is people and culture. Sort of the, the way a company operates, the way that the leadership thinks about the way a company should operate, how transparent are they with the people that are in the company, how do they create opportunity for others than themselves. You know, if you can create the right culture, you can do anything. And you can just look around and see companies that have great cultures and see what they've done. And then there's these other companies that you think had great products or services and they just kind of disappear. It's really all about people and all about culture. And so one of the things I really like about FMX today is, is that we've got a great culture here. We've got great people. We're small, but we get a lot of great things done and our customers absolutely love us. So, um, you know, that's the one thing I would, uh, I would want your listeners to think about whenever they're thinking about where they want to go to build a career is pay a lot of attention not to the job that's really offered because the job you're offered when you go in may be the job you have for two weeks and you might be doing something else. But look at the company as a whole and ask yourself, do I feel like I belong here? Are these people like me? Do they have, you know, do we have shared values? Do they like to work hard? Do they like to play hard? You know, just what does it feel like? I think that's the most important thing. And then the other thing, uh, you know, because your audience tends to be younger, um, I think the, uh, one of the things that really mattered to me was, uh, was giving back to the, to the community and to, because I've been very lucky and I just thought I ought to try to do everything I could to you know, help other people come along. So even from the very beginning, I got involved in as many things as I could in the community. I got involved early on with COSI. Uh, it fit right in with my interest in science and technology. And there was a gentleman there in the beginning that introduced it to me. And I was very active in COSI for over 20 years and uh, worked really hard to build a computer center in COSI, both as a demonstration. Uh, actually, it almost mirrored the, one of the CompuServe data centers. Uh, but, but the computer itself was used to support the arts and human services organizations in the city. We had people build software for it to help with their subscription accounting and marketing and ticket you know, management, those kinds of things. And then I also got involved in the Columbus Chamber of Commerce. I was on the chamber board for, I guess I had four terms, four years each, maybe 16 years. And I did a lot of other uh, kind of, you know, we adopted schools. We, we adopted the Upper Arlington High School and helped introduce technology and computers to, that, to the public schools. And then I was involved early on in starting an independent school called the Wellington School uh, because I wanted to have a lab I want to see a laboratory for how new ideas in education could be developed. So I think you know the, to, to your members of your audience who are already active doing things and, and, and being successful and 
I urge you to spend some time and you know work with other organizations and give back and, and pay it forward, as some people like to say. Really important. So one thing that I'm really interested here before we part ways is you probably had opportunities across the entire country and world to branch out professionally, getting opportunities from um, places all over. What made you stay in Columbus, and what was it in particular about the city that really stuck out and made you want to call this home for such a long period of time? Well, I mean, how could you not live in Columbus? It's got a great ocean and beautiful mountains. <laughs> see it every day right out our window. <laughs> yeah. I'm originally yeah. from San Diego, so... Uh, oh, yeah, I mean, we've got a great beach here. It's like here. the same, basically, right? It's, yeah. I mean, it's pretty it's much identical. the same city. Yeah, and in the summer, there's never any humidity. Why would you not? What's, what's there not to love about Columbus? Um, the truth is, is that Columbus is a great place to start a business. Um, it's very, um, and, and it was in 1970. Um, you know, I, Dave Thomas, who was a friend of mine uh, in the way back time when he just got Wendy started here, and uh, I, could, I could probably name 20 other people that have done things here. Columbus is a town where. Um, they were very supportive and friendly to people trying to do new things. It wasn't like, you know, if you weren't from here, which I wasn't, uh, that therefore you're not welcome here. I mean, they just, it was just an open, supportive place. The banking was supportive. Um, I remember, <laughs> another quick story, uh, these computers that we uh, used, the computer cost a million dollars a piece, and uh you know, I mentioned we had adequate capital from the life company, and we got the first one up and the second one up, and then it was time to get a third one. I needed to borrow some money. So I went to one of the banks who shall remain nameless locally, and I went in and, you know, presented my case. And he looked at me, and he said, aren't you awfully young to be borrowing a million dollars? I thought, what? No, you know, I was really insulted. I think I was 27 maybe at the time. Um, so what I did was I got up, I walked across the street, went to another bank, I did had the same conversation. The guy said, be happy to help you. I've been with Huntington ever since. So one thing that you mentioned during that story there so nonchalantly was your friendship with Dave Thomas, the founder of Wendy's. And I've noticed since I've spent some time around you over the last 12 months that you have lots of stories and lots of friendships like this throughout your life. Very amazing people, friends with the founder of Cardinal Health, and, and the list goes on and on. So can you talk a little bit about these relationships and any individual ones in particular that really stick out to you and that have influenced your life to where you are today? Well, I, I was very fortunate. Uh, we grew pretty quickly as a company, as you know. By, by 1974, um, you know, we were, I don't know, I, I guess in those days we were probably $8 million, which in terms of dollar equivalency today would be 40 or $50 million. Um, and there was an organization called the Young Presidents Organization, uh, that was it, was, it was CEOs of companies of at least 50 employees, and I think it was $4 million in sales in those days. And I was um, invited to a lunch uh, with these guys and uh, to join the organization. And uh, they were generally older by about 10 years at the time. But they were guys that were in their mid-30s or late-30s and early-40s. I was in my late-20s, mid-20s, I guess. And... Um, I was really excited about the organization. It was all about education and idea exchange and, you know, meeting people like you who had similar problems with you. So I joined, and the second year they made me membership chairman. And I think they did that because they saw that, uh, they saw that uh, you know, there was a new generation of guys coming along kind of my age. And so I started recruiting. And one of the first guys I recruited was Bob Walter. Uh, Bob Walter was a year younger than I was. He might have been 26 or 27 at the time. Uh, I met him at the 
indoor te- at the tennis club or something. We were playing tennis together and met him there. And Jim Pickett, who did uh, Jim Pickett, with, ultimately became the chairman of Wendy's and developed a lot of real estate in town, hotels. Uh, John McCoy, who was at Bank One, I, I just sort of little by little started to build a group of guys who were all doing interesting things in business and finance. And that became the peer group. And uh, it's still to this day, I have 11 guys that I get together with, you know, frequently the same guys. Some of them are retired, some of them are still very active. And some of them built huge companies. Bob Walter built Cardinal Health into a, you know, 17th largest company in the in the country, and he's currently executive chairman of American Express, you know, and, you know, and there's, and there's guys who have just done amazing things in Columbus, and all of them, to a man, have reached back and helped younger people develop their businesses and their careers. And so I, I think this, this whole attitude about Columbus is really, really important. I think you couldn't be in a better place. And when you get ready to hit the surf, you just get your airplane ticket and you go back to San Diego. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, as we're kind of wrapping up, one one question we wanted to ask you is that our, our slogan on our shirts, on the back of our t-shirts, I don't know if you've ever seen them, is live uncomfortably. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. <laughs> I love shameless plugs for t-shirts. But, um, so is, were there any times in your life that you felt like um, that saying, because we feel that you have to live uncomfortably. Always. Always. In order to... I'm succeed. uncomfortable today. You know, I hope I, it's not because of us. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> It's, it's just simply because there's always more to do than there's time to get it all done. And uh, there's always, there, you, you know, as soon as I can see how to solve that challenge, I know there's another one waiting on the other side of it. So I, that's a pretty good slogan. I, I wasn't aware of that, but that's, that's pretty good. You know, th- there's another one that kind of goes along with it called delayed gratification. Uh, you know, if you live uncomfortably and you're not trying to drive your Ferrari tomorrow, you're willing to wait one more year for your Ferrari, you'd be better off. So there is one thing that I'd like to talk about before we transition away from that question, and that's I'd really love to hear an insight into what your daily life was like as you were climbing through the ranks of all these companies and leading so many successful organizations. Did you find yourself a lot of time on the weekends kind of missing out on things the other friends were doing, or were you able to maintain a healthy work-life balance? Um, what, what was that experience like for you, and what was that path like? Well, there's another story. Uh, in YPO, one of the YPO uh, events I went to, I met a guy by the name of Stephen Covey. Uh, Steve Covey went on to write a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I met Steve Covey when he was just working on the second habit. And I actually hired him to come to one of our CompuServe meetings in Mexico and teach our team for three days, you know, some, some of the principles. And there's, the seven habits is probably a good of, a good of, as good a, set of skills to develop as anything I've ever seen. Now, there's lots of different books and all kinds of things, but Seven Habits is pretty good, pretty good start, right? You know, begin with the end in mind. Okay, where are you trying to go? You know, put first things first. You know, and my favorite one is the seventh one, which is sharpen the saw. What sharpen the saw means, according to Steve Covey, who's now passed away, is constantly renew yourself by educating yourself by reading. You know, learn from other people. You know, don't just spend all your time heads down trying to get, you know, looking for the end in mind. You know, you've got to take time and you've got to sharpen the saw. The other one is, is that, and I, you and I have talked about this, Josh, you know, in your life, you really need to have balance. You can't just work. You, you know, you, everybody needs people. We're humans. You know, we need other, we need human contact. We need human relationships. You've got to balance that all out. 
you know, I, I know some people along the way that have been so successful that they've lost their families along the way, you know. We used to always joke uh, at some of these YPO universities, you'd see guys with young women, you know, and say, well, that's his, obviously his niece, you know, well, this was his, a trophy wife, you know. I never wanted to be near that. And in fact, this group of guys I mentioned to you before, they're all with their first wives, so we've all been married 50 years, you know. It's just a, uh, it, it, it's... It's a it's a set of values that you have to you have to live, and balance is a key part of all of that. So, you know, I know your audience is young. Everybody's hard charging. You should be doing all of that. Don't let a minute go by that you waste. But take some time out to smell the roses too. Enjoy yourself and and have some balance. And you know, life will life will deliver for you. I think that's I think that's a great place to uh, end the episode off. And Jeff, thank you for your time today. And uh, we appreciate you coming on the show with us. And um, I'm going to kick it over to Josh for a quick recap on the episode and any of the lessons that we got for today. Thanks, Mike. And more importantly, thank you, Jeff, for sitting down with us today. I have no doubt that our listeners are going to get a lot out of this episode. I always feel extremely fortunate when I get the opportunity to listen to you speak, tell your stories, and share your insight on things. You've lived an extraordinary life, and uh, you have a lot of a brilliance that comes out of everything that you, that you tell people. And if you guys like this episode, make sure to share it with your friends, rate us on iTunes. Again, that was Mr. Jeff Wilkins, and that is Conquering Columbus. We'll talk to you guys later. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.